Welcome to Contamination Station, safer environment together, a New South Wales EPA-funded podcast. In these episodes, you'll hear from those working to implement contaminated land policies and procedures at the local level. By sharing our stories, frustrations, wins and losses, our aim is for this podcast to become a repository of information that will support those currently working to combat contaminated land and for those yet to come. In today's episode, we're joined by Joel Little, former Senior Environmental Officer turned Director and Principal Consultant of Conmara Environmental Management Solutions. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the host and the guest as individuals and do not necessarily reflect those of the New South Wales EPA or any other organisation. Joel started his professional environmental career in wildlife conservation across southeastern Australia and a move back closer to home saw him take up an offer for an environmental officer role in regional New South Wales with the council. Fast forward over 15 years and Joel has utilised the exposure to the wide range of situations that local government offered to start his own consultancy business, helping residents, businesses and councils in dealing with the complex issues surrounding the environmental assessment, contaminated land, soil and water management and biodiversity space. Thank you so much for your time today, Joel. It is great to have you here. Good day, Cheryl. Lovely to be here. So, Joel, you're closely involved with the CRCB program since uh, its inception in 2015, definitely longer than mm. I've been involved, <laughs> which meant that you were able to build upon your contaminated land knowledge step by step as the council also increased its capacity to deal with the myriad of complex contaminated land issues. So, from what you've shared, it sounds like being able to work closely with your peers and participating in ongoing training and professional development was really key in helping you develop your environmental knowledge to the point that you were then mentoring and training those around you. Mm. So given the importance that you've placed on collaboration, do you have any advice that you give to somebody just beginning their career in the environmental industry? Yeah, sure. It's a great question. There's a lot of people working in the environmental industry and they're coming from all different backgrounds, experience, generally coming with some sort of degree to get into the industry. But there's so many different environmental degrees out there. And so people are coming in with that wide range of experience. And so I guess I would advise people to just use that experience, use your passion and your skills, because we come into the environmental field because we want to look after the environment. We want to see that there's a good outcome, that we want to make a difference. We want to make a change. And so as you said, I started off working in wildlife conservation and found myself working in an environmental officer role within a local government. And that was predominantly a compliance role, mm-hmm. environmental assessment, education, but also compliance. And so that was widely different from what I'd been working on before. But one of the things that I guess my manager told me then was that the reason why I was employed at that stage was because of my customer service experience, my, my experience with working with people. And oh, so- okay. Using that environmental experience and using those customer service skills, I was able to grow into that field. And so there's a lot of people working in local government who've been there a very long time. I actually found it quite daunting. Within the first couple of months, I realized there'd been people there who, who started when they were 16 and they were now in their 60s, which is quite, quite scary for me at the time. But there's also an amazing source of information and knowledge there. And so Put yourself in those situations around those people. You can learn so much from those people. 
you can have really good conversations and you don't necessarily have to agree with them all the time, but you can learn from them. And a lot of people have got on-ground knowledge and know the history of things like that. So I found that really good. And that's something I'd recommend to everybody is to utilize those experiences and, and to tap into those resources. Also to try and commit to ongoing upskilling and improvement. Don't just sort of sit in there and be comfortable because the industry changes, the expectations mm. from the community changes, and that's something that I recognise very quickly is that uh, as soon as you improve something, the community expects another improvement on top of that. So you just have to keep improving on that. And in your career, have you done a lot of your own, I guess, professional development and learning or have you relied on your employer at the time to do that or to, to fund that for you? I was lucky that my direct manager had experience working in in water and uh, timber production and things like that. So I had a really good chemical knowledge and I had a pretty poor one working here with wildlife. So I was able to tap into that. But the council that I worked for was very supportive of continued professional development. So I think I did my first UTS contaminated land training within about 12 months of being there. And I remember just sitting there with my brain hurting because it was just so much new information that I'd, I'd never really been exposed to before. I think the only contaminated land thing I'd done before that was actually clean up an old farm tip, which wasn't really contamination or remediation, just picking up and throwing it in. So, <laughs> so it was all new. And so just keep building on that. And so, again, the council was supportive of my passion, which is around uh Around environmental improvement, I, you know, I still love working with wildlife, but seeing that improvement over time, and so just being able to being access to lots of ongoing training opportunities before you know things like the CRCB program came along. Mm. And you have mentioned that you started off in wildlife conservation, mm. and that is such an interesting field and one which is really. I guess it kind of pulls at your heartstrings a bit as well. Mm. It's, it's a feel-good, you know, oh, position. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of us out there who started off our journeys in environmental science, I guess in a similar kind of background, doing the very green degree or wanting to get into the very green space, but ended up in a position that isn't quite so so green, you know, more of a brownfield type role mm. or something a bit different. But I'm interested to find out, did you find that going to a local council with your background in wildlife conservation, you did actually find components of your role in council because it is so diverse that you went, oh, hey, you know, I can actually draw on my experience in wildlife conservation and apply it to this situation? Was, mm. there, was there enough crossover for you to go, that's why I did this degree? <laughs> yeah, there was some definite crossovers because councils are the lowest rung of government, if you can put it that way, that if they've called everybody else, the last person they speak to before they can't deal with anybody is, is council. And so with in the environment section within the council, you were often the last person they would speak to within the council before nobody could help them again. And so you would often get these very random phone calls. And so working with wildlife, I would get the phone calls about rats or possums in the roof, about pigeons, about possums, <laughs> all sorts of things like that, which I could utilize quite readily. That, that was something that I could transfer straight into. Native vegetation, so clearing for development, illegal clearing, that again was sort of in my field. The community education side of things, we're doing wildlife stuff. I did a lot of guiding and working with people who had a range of, of knowledge around conservation, around the natural environment. So being able to 
interpret and try and present information in lay terms to them was something that I was able to tap into as well. And so it's sort of funny because when I started, I felt, did I feel pressure to impress people? I'm not sure, but it was more about I had this good knowledge. I, I felt that I had to put that knowledge out there. So when you were doing a report for council or when you were doing something for in response to a development, I found that I was too technical. I provided too much information. And you could see, you know, the blank look on people's faces when they started reading this thing. And I thought, no, I'm doing this the wrong way. And I went back to that whole guiding way of things, of tapping into the way that people would understand or would listen and then and then follow that way. So I, I found that my reports over time and my responses were probably a quarter of the size that they used to be before, a quarter of the length, because I was able to just really drill it down to the, the, the bare bones, just try and keep it simple. And that's something I've continued on with. And that's something I learned probably within the first sort of four or five years that there was a better way of doing this and I'll hopefully improve on that over time. So that was probably one of the best things I was able to bring to it. So is there anything that you would have done differently if you could start your career over? It's a really interesting question. And I think if you asked me that 10 years ago, I would have given a complete different answer. And I think as we, as we get older, we start to appreciate what life has given us more. And it's something that I'd love to be able to just transpose onto my children readily because you know they they have challenges which aren't big challenges now but they feel really big but what I've been able to take is I I felt that at first that I was going on the wrong path because I was moving further and further away from my passion which was in my life and things but I was also put into a situation where not everybody thought the same way that I thought or believed or had the same knowledge or understanding or values and that was a big hit to me because I came from working with wildlife where everybody's passionate about wildlife. When you're working in the field, everybody else has the same passions as you. To having people that really felt like at first that they didn't care or they had to really be convinced to care. And so that was something that I, looking back on, that I really knew that was beneficial to me, even though that I thought I'd give it a couple of years, which a lot of people do in councils, think I'll give it two or three years. And nearly, it was there for nearly, you know, I think it was one month short of 15 years. Those experiences is working with people who are hard to convince, to hard to win over, the managers, the, the people in different sections within council, the engineers, the developers, the solicitors, the real estate agents, you know, all of these different people who were really against what we were talking about. And really you had the law on your side, but you had to convey that in a way that they understood and then could come around to the best way of doing things. And that's something I really value. And and even though I've seen the people who continued in the wildlife industry all the way through and I think, wow, they're doing some amazing stuff and that could have been me. I have no regrets from what I've been able to take away. I've met some great people. I've now got a, a diverse range of experience that I can take that into so many different avenues in my professional career moving forward. And so going back to the very start, you know, if you're starting out in a career and someone says to you, look, over the next 15 years, I'm going to expose you to every single different component of the environment industry that you can imagine, that was what working in local government was like for me. And so, yeah, I can't really say that I'd do anything differently. Yeah, a great, I guess, introduction to such a broad range of experiences. Mm. And whilst I've never worked in local government, what you're talking about is a very similar experience to what I had when I left uni and ended up after a couple of career changes within the environmental space in construction and exactly the same thing, having to convince people who had higher priorities, Mm. much higher priorities and budgets to keep and all the rest of it is, yeah, it's definitely a skill which was well learnt 
for me as well. Just recently, I've come across in the last few years anyway, some a new degree that you can do through a couple of universities now, I think it is, which is called something like environmental communications and teaching or something along those lines. But basically, it's training people to become presenters or disseminating environmental information in mm. an engaging way. I guess the, the epitome of that is people going on to television shows and being presenters on there for environmental or wildlife yeah. type information. Yeah. When I saw that, I was like, wow, that's what we need. <laughs> we need that combined with the environmental science degree. <laughs> yeah. And it's and it's it's often if we, with environmental degrees, communication is often just one small component. I was lucky in my degree that it was actually a pretty sizable component. Mm -hmm. Uh, My original degree that I did first was based around becoming a park ranger, essentially. And so working with the public and interacting with the public communicating was actually a really big component of that. Uh, I ended up going off onto a different path, more specialised, but I still look back at those learnings because it's around the communication. And to the point where sometimes I thought, you know, it wouldn't be bad to go back and do some sort of diploma of education or something like that to understand how to talk because the younger ones are often the hardest ones to, to communicate to and yeah. I find it doesn't come naturally to me. I've got teachers everywhere in my family but I find that really hard and, and you're right, it, it's an important aspect of environment is actually communicating effectively. Mm, definitely. So what aspects of your background have really helped you specifically in your now what you're doing with consultancy mm. around contaminated land? It's probably that diverse range. Like I've I've really got a range of skills that probably a lot of other people don't have working in private consultancy. So I know that there's a lot of people who have worked in, in local government who may have been engineers or town planners or building surveyors and they go out into that same sort of field. But being an environmental officer, so being a compliance person, an education person, an environmental assessment person, and doing community programs and things like that has brought this broad range of technical skills into my repertoire. So that's been really good to be able to to tap into that. And so very quickly when people, you know, you'd bump into people in the shops and they would say, well, how are you going? What are you up to nowadays? And they explain what they're doing. That. And the first you could see they go, oh, I actually need something like that. I need that sort of thing. And no one's asking the same thing. Everyone's asking for different work. But I was finding I could I could answer most of those. What I found is I've focused predominantly on the council type work at the moment, and I'm working on both sides of the council now. I've, <laughs> for instance, I worked on a really tricky DA in a small community, and I worked for the property owner who was having a lot of trouble getting this DA across the line, and eventually convinced the council that it could have been approved and got across the line. And then two weeks later, I was on the other side of the counter helping the council with some tricky contaminated land stuff. So that's that's pretty interesting. So you have to be very careful about how you manage your relationships with people and stuff. But yeah, again, I'm coming from both sides there, from that environmental assessment side of things, but also the policy and the technical aspects of the contaminated land program. Okay. So what have been some wins that you've had in the contaminated land space, specifically, I guess, around working in the CRCB program possibly? Mm, yeah. Well, the CRCB program, what became before that was an expression of interest through the New South Wales EPA. And I think that was back at a time when the EPA was sort of not quite at the EPA again. And so it was New South Wales government and they were calling out for expressions of interest from councillors who may be interested in a capacity building program. And so I think this was about 2012, 2013. And so 
we went, yes, definitely we need help. You know, if we thought if someone could come along and, and train up people with that. So being the first CRCB program, grant program that we were lucky to be a part of, we, we were in a group of 19 councils, which was phenomenal. And you had councils that the rate base, they had 3,000 rate payers up to, you know, 30 or 40,000 rate payers. And, and so quite a diverse range of councils. And so just getting that implemented and to the point where we had policies and procedures and, and resources and documents and just some of the basic stuff. So information on councils, websites, and the, the really early low-hanging fruit sort of information that you want to get going so that contamination is part of that conversation. Mm-hmm. And I remember that the our project officer back then had a whole bunch of planners and building surveyors in the room. And he was asking questions about what would you look at at this site? What would you look at this site? And very quickly it came out that everyone was considering contamination as part of their assessments that they do, but had never thought of it front of mind. And so I think I, I can't claim that that's been one of my wins, but being part of a program of seeing that now contamination is one of the things that they check. You know, they check is it, you know, bushfire prone, is it a heritage conservation zone? Is it permissible in the zone? Is there a risk of contamination? You know, and they do that for biodiversity as well. So it's now one of those things they check straight away within yeah, the council. Yeah. And that in itself is a big win because it means that contamination is a consideration up front, but then it rolls over. So once you've got the policies and procedures and you've implemented that, which takes a lot of work, you know, I can talk about it in five seconds like that, but it was, it was probably two years worth of work before we'd finally got that, that momentum going where the community was on board, the developers understood that if they were doing this, that you would have to do it some sort of assessment because it was a brownfield size. But what we were finding that contamination became a point of discussion and negotiation for the sale of the property, for instance, rather than just being, well, whoever's going to buy it's going to deal with it. You know, mm-hmm. it's the buyer beware sort of argument that people might have. And it changed to being, well, hang on, this property's been identified through a register or a land use information system or whatever it might be within the council. I want to know more about that, you know. So the prospective purchasers were having discussions about contamination before they even got close to signing on the dotted line. And that was one of the wins that we had. It was a property that had never really got occupation certificate stage, though there was always weird activities going on. One of those ones where they just keep growing outside the boundary. So you're coming up and there'll be a an upside down car on the verge, you know, next to the road. And then there would be a skip bin and there'd be a bunch of pallets and you go out and tell them to move everything off the road. And then you'd look over the fence and like, oh my gosh, what is going on in there? One of those properties came up for sale. And I think the owner thought, oh, I'm just going to flog it off and it's going to be someone else's problem. But the only person interested in what was being for sale as a junkyard was someone who made them go and tidy it up do a clean up, remove all the waste, do a premium site investigation, then a detailed site investigation. And I think once they did the detailed site investigation, they basically negotiated a change in the value of the property based upon how much the remediation was going to cost. And as soon as they purchased the property, it was remediated. They fixed everything that had to be fixed. The occupation certificate was issued and it was done. And that's, that's the win that we were always looking for is encouraging good development. 
any property can be remediated mm-hmm. because we know that remediation is just fit for purpose. You know, a lot of people coming from the environmental background is, is you know, it has to be pre- completely clean. But that was a big challenge for me to get my head around that. But, you know, it's just suitable for the proposed use. And so a lot of these industrial sites, you wouldn't want to put a childcare centre on them. But we were turning them around from pretty horrible sites. And when you were seeing these reports coming in, they weren't good places. And some of them had childcare centres put on them. They actually turned them around so well, especially in that, the boom that we, we've seen in regional areas, that there was a need to push out into these areas that were once dumping grounds and things like that in the 30s, 40s, 50s. And so they were cleaning them up and they were turning them into places that were suitable for residential, suitable for childcare facilities and palliative care facilities and became test cases one after the other of, of how you can turn around something that was, in, for those instances, they were tanneries and timber mills and abattoir and right next to the river, that's where they all went. And it was all perfectly flat ground so that we knew that there was obviously stuff on the ground and we found all sorts of things on the ground, but it was all remediated and it's now perfectly safe for the use that's there. And that's, that's a pretty good outcome. That is a really, really good outcome. Definitely something you should be proud of. So jumping onto something slightly different now, you posted something on LinkedIn, on your LinkedIn profile recently, expressing your concerns about runoff from large scale solar installations. So with the move towards renewables across Australia and in your area, there would be a lot of renewable projects going on with the Central Arana Res. Mm. What would you like to see discussed and considered more closely when it comes to potential environmental issues posed by solar and wind developments? Yeah. So one of the things that my role in within council was to look at erosion sediment control plans and solar water management plans. And that was another thing that was just as challenging as contaminated land, was getting that to be an improved focus of development. And the link that I share was with regards to a solar farm that had been put in probably, it looked like a quite an arid site. I think it was in the US and solar farm is a lot of hard services. And for most jurisdictions, they're classes permeable infrastructure because they're not changing the infiltration into the ground. However, it changes the runoff, it changes mm-hmm. the way that the water hits the ground. And so that's that's an issue for a lot of sites, especially if you're going into something that's highly erodible, you've got sodic soils or acid sulfate soils, that you have to consider that you're changing something that where the rainforest was spread out over two square metres, which is roughly the size of a solar panel, to then hitting that solar panel running off and then coming off that leading edge onto the ground. And so it's a potential issue for concentrated flows, erosion, and then going into you know, waterways and where you're getting sediment sediment migration to the waterways. And we know that sediment into waterways results in fish kills and loss of habitat, loss of value in those waterways. It turns a nice, clear, stony bottom creek or river into a, a dirty river. However, there's lots of opportunities there as well. So solar and wind, which is predominantly the renewable energy that we're talking about in Australia, is going into areas that where industry hadn't gone before, where we hadn't seen big commercial investment before. So they're going up on top of hills, which are hard to get to. And because they're on top of a hill, it might be steep slopes. And so you have to be careful of, of erosion and things like that. And, and so soils, yeah. Yeah. And so look, that's probably similar to anything that you're building up on top of a hill. So it's just, it just being aware of soil disturbance, uh, how the runoff is dealt with, because these access roads have got to be in place in perpetuity. 
you know, not concentrating your flows off those sort of sites and remembering the number one rule for soil and water management is ground cover. Maintain ground cover as much as you can the whole way through. But as I said, there's opportunities. So you can put solar farms on grazing properties. You can put them on market gardens. And it actually can provide more diverse sources of cropping. You can put crops in places that maybe were frost intolerant before especially those ones further out west in Australia where the climate's a bit warmer. You can actually grow things that would like prefer a cooler climate because you can grow them in the shade underneath. And we've seen that done quite well overseas where they, they're growing things like blueberries, which were traditionally found in a forest, in the floor of the forest. Uh, they're growing them under a solar farm. And so they can actually use that water that's coming off the solar to irrigate as well in a better way. And solar grazing is another great thing where they just make the panels a little bit higher ensure that the cables and that are well protected and they're just running sheep under them mm. and it's no different to grazing in a woodland environment for the sheep's perspective because it's got something where the grass is green greener because it's not getting exposed to full sun all the time and there's lots of shade around and again coming from that wildlife background is that if your wildlife are happy if your animals are happy sorry they're, they're more productive so you're more likely to get higher returns of investment from those animals so there's, there's issues for any development, but there's also opportunities. And so considering those issues and opportunities up front is always what should be done for any development, especially some of those bigger and more complex ones, uh, such as you know solar farms and renewable farms. And I guess, there's, as you stated, there's a lot of opportunities for things like with the grazing underneath solar panels. We, we're seeing you know, there's drought mitigation that is built into having a solar farm with grazing underneath because, again, you've got the greener pastures underneath during drought mm. conditions, which prolongs the life of stock being able to be carried on that land as well. So, yeah, yeah there's, there's definitely benefits too in conjunction with the benefits being realised through a solar farm or a, or a wind farm. And it's just thinking out slightly outside the box sometimes as to how to actually utilise that. Yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. and that's probably a good return back into the CRCB program around, you know, a council regional capacity building program. You know, it's dealing with the councils who are outside the bigger centres. It's dealing with the capacity because they've got, you know, generally have higher turnover and, and a lower skill base or a more narrow skill base, I should say. And so tapping into that diverse range of skills that are across, across the board and things like that and considering outside the box, like you said, within those sort of environments and applications. Yeah, and with these projects we're talking about with the renewables, most of them are state-significant developments. So therefore, the council's role is limited to assessing the draft SEERS or the scoping report and then the EIS providing mm. advice and, and really pushing for what's best for their communities through maybe a planning yeah. agreement or something along those lines. But outside that, unless there's you know smaller DAs associated with the ancillary facilities or anything like that, I guess there's a real role for councils to really advocate for their their own population mm. to get what's best for them because being state significant, that's not going to happen if the council doesn't do that. Yeah. 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 Councils are a leader of the community in that respect and it's probably one of the few times where councils don't have that really influential role on the outcome mm. of the development where they become part of the community, but they can be a collective of the community and, and you're right, it's probably being more proactive in that respect is that initially, and, and renewable energy is something else that I did within my role at council, and, and initially the renewable energy side of things was west, 
well inland, like the bigger in investments were sort of Dubbo. Uh, Dubbo was the break-even sort of area because it had a big enough population and good enough solar that the wind farms and the solar farms weren't really coming inland from there. Mm. But we've seen with the increased price of energy over time and the dramatic reduction in the cost of panels and wind turbines, you know, it's a 90% reduction or an increase in productivity of those things, they're pushed further and further inland. And so I think in the last sort of five years, there was three solar farms proposed for around Bathurst, which is near where I'm based. And each one was probably dealt with individually. And so mm-hmm. councils do have a role in those areas for a range of things. And it's no different to all the zoning that the master planning that we do for considering how a residential area is going to look over the next 20, 30 years. We should probably be doing that for renewable energy installations and new technology installations as well, because we know that there's places where renewable energy is probably not appropriate if it's going to be removing that productivity, for instance, because really in the end, it's no different to building a shed on the place for 20 or 30 years, you know, so it's lost from productivity. So encouraging renewable energy, such as a solar farm, goes in a way that it can continue to be a mixed use enterprise. Wind farms, we know that aesthetics and amenity and landscapes are really important to communities. So if we've moved into an area because we love the scenery and then all of a sudden there's these huge wind turbines, you know, those turbines are nearly 200 metres tall now, on the top of the mountains that we've grown to love, we Mm. might oppose to that straight away. And so maybe there's some sort of landscape caveat that we want to have in those areas where we want to push people towards another area, which is the impact is going to be lessened. Personally, I like wind turbines and solar farms. I've seen them in very interesting places and I like seeing them every time because I know that every one of those is less pollution in the air. It's better air quality for our kids and for our for our communities and cheaper energy in the end. Yeah, so that I think councils have a role in that in being a little bit more forward thinking into how we can encourage those sort of things to go in the right place. But also on the other technology side of things, we're moving more and more to you know cloud-based servers and data servers and things like that. And so encouraging the infrastructure to be put into a place that you could have a data server in your community, uh, which ensures that you've got a constant stable network for your businesses, for your communities, because everything's local rather than going back towards Sydney, which is people have a perception of the cloud being somewhere, but there's sheds around (laughs) Parramatta, for instance, you know, these huge sheds soaking up lots of energy and so we're sending all of that back to there so there's an opportunity for those and tapping into some of those other emerging technologies around batteries around electric vehicles and things like that so councils do have a a role to play in being proactive in so many places and most of the time they're very good at doing that because that's what the community wants it's usually they're only limited by the resources and the staffing capacity yeah. yeah. And I guess they've also got that role to play in working with the other councils that they have borders with because mm. these large installations of renewable energies often cross council boundaries and therefore yeah. if the councils are able to talk to each other, they can come up with a better solution for everybody all around, yeah, rather than operating in, in isolation. Yeah, sure. Well, thank you very much for being my guest today, Joel. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, it's been my pleasure too. Thanks, Chanel. That wraps up this episode of Contamination Station. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Contamination Station, Safer Environment Together, an EPA-funded podcast hosted by Chanel Gleeson-Wiley. We hope you've enjoyed our chat. 
and been inspired to continue working towards a safer environment together. We would love for you to stick around for the next episode. So keep those headphones on, grab another cuppa, and settle in for more insightful stories.